0: You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Y'all ready? All right. First Corinthians 12 is where we're going to be. A few years ago, my dad and I were fishing together in Arkansas and my dad's a terrible fisherman, I'm, I'm not bad, so it's really fun to fish with him because he's not catching any fish, I'm catching all the fish, and I'm talking a lot of trash. And then like the, the fish that he would catch were like these tiny little fish, and then the fish I would catch are like these big fish, so he'd catch a fish and he'd be all excited about his little flipper looking fish, and I'd pull my fish out and be like, oh that's a cute little flipper fish, oh look at this, bam, you know, this one's named like Hulk the Warrior fish or something like that. Uh, you know, we, we, we love fishing together. And uh, we were fishing this one time on the Little Missouri uh, River in, uh, in south-central Arkansas. And fishing for trout, I, on this particular day, I'd caught about 35 trout. In the couple hours we were fishing, he had caught about three trout. And you can keep up to five. You can catch as many as you want as long as you keep putting them back. And we weren't planning on keeping any fish that day. But when you're fishing, oftentimes they'll swallow the hook. Uh, this doesn't matter what kind of fish you're fishing for, but trout especially... Uh, will swallow the hook. And so when a fish swallows the hook, there's really what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to cut the line and just leave the hook in them. And they tell you that eventually the hook will work its way out. I don't know how that works on a fish. Uh, Seems kind of painful, but eventually it'll work its way out. So like most of these fish that were swallowing the hook, I just cut the line, leave the hook in, throw them back in the water. But eventually I kept losing all my hooks. And so I was running out of hooks. Plus I was getting a little frustrated, these trout taking on my hooks. And so uh, I, I caught this one fish and I'm like, he'd swallow the hook. And I'm like, man, you know, you little punk, you're not going to swallow my hook. I talk to my fish sometimes. And, uh, and so I decided I was going to pull the hook out. Now, if a fish has swallowed the hook and you don't pull the hook out just right, it's kind of like turning a sock inside out. Like everything that's supposed to be on the inside ends up on the outside. And so, uh, like all of its guts come out and blood goes everywhere and the fish just dies like instantly. And so that's what happened to this one fish, and then it happened to another fish, and so you can't just throw those back in the water, because dead fish, it'll just float, it won't swim, go downstream, it's really sad, and uh, people get mad about it too, and it's against the law. So I took uh, these two fish, and I put them on my stringer, and again, we weren't planning on keeping any fish, uh, but I I, I still could kill, in theory, I could kill three more and keep on fishing. So I put these two on the stringer, and we kept fishing. Well, eventually, my dad and I got tired of fishing, and... We we're ready to go, and so my dad said, "Hey, I'm, I'm picking up my stringer with the two fish on it, about to leave." And my dad says, "Hey, just leave those here. Like, don't worry about it. Just leave them here." And I'm like, "Dad, that's a bad idea. I feel like there's something wrong about that." And he goes, "Dude, we don't have time to cook them. I don't want to mess with them. I don't want them in the car. Just leave them." And I'm like, "Okay, I'll leave them." So I take them off my stringer, drop them there, and we start to walk to the car. And as we get to the car, uh, this man comes up to my dad and I, and in his professional voice, he says, uh, excuse me, fellas, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to detain you for a moment. Uh, I'm with the uh, Arkansas Fish and Game uh, Warden, or whatever they call it. And uh, the, the game warden, he's on his way over from the other side of the river. He wants me to detain you here until he gets here. And I'm like, what? What did, you know, what did we do? And uh, so we start talking, and he, he, didn't, he wasn't really sure what we had done uh, he said it was going to take about 10 minutes for the other guy to get over there. Apparently the, the, the fish and game warden guy had been on the other side of the river in camo for like the past three hours watching my dad and I fish, which had to have been really funny. But, um, so I'm talking to this guy that's detaining us, and very quickly I realized this guy had gone to the same school I went to in Arkansas. Um, and he's much older than me, but I thought maybe it's a long shot, you know, uh, strike up some convo, become his friend, and he can help me out. So I find out that he's actually in the same fraternity that I'm in. And I was like, no way, bro, you're an S. And he's like, yeah, I'm an S. And I was like, cool, I'm 2004 pledge class. He's like, I'm like 1977 pledge class. I'm like, bro, you're old. <laughs> um, but we start talking and we do a little special handshake. And at that point, like S's help, S's out. That's what they called us, where the S is. And so he's like, well, what did you do? And I'm like, man, I have no idea. And I was like, oh, I know what it was. My dad told me to leave the fish there on the ground that are dead. And he goes, well, where are the fish? And so we walk over there. And he goes, yeah, this is the problem. This is against the law. And so he, uh, he kicks one of the fish into the river and uh, it goes down. He's like, if he can't find the fish, then he can't charge you for him. So he picks up the other fish and he starts to dig a hole to bury the other fish. And as he's digging the hole, that's when the game warden shows up. And so he stands up real quick and he's like, found the other fish, sir. Found the other fish. So he walks it over to him and he's looking at me like, sorry, bro. Uh, <laughs> you're on your own on this one. And so the game warden walks up. And he's like being a punk. You know, he's got his camo on. He's got this badge here, like he's a real cop, but he's not a real cop. And he's acting like he's a real cop, though. And so he walks up with this real cop attitude. And uh, he's like, you know, kind of being all mean and punkish and, and not yelling, but like harsh words with us. And, uh, and, you know, my dad, he's a real peacemaker. I was an idiot at that point in my life. And so. I'm kind of getting a little bit feisty with him, too. And so I said, you know, what did we do wrong? And he goes, well, you took the fish. You, you know, first of all, it was like a sock. You turned it inside out. It exploded everywhere. Then you put it on your stringer. You killed it. Then you left it there. That's against the law. It's called wasting wildlife. And so I said, sir, I had no idea. And basically, this kind of argument proceeds from here of I had no idea. And he's like, I don't care if you had no idea. And then at one point after I said, sir, I just didn't know, he, he looks at me. He kind of stops me. And he says, real stern, looking me in the face, he says, son. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you can't call me son. Uh, he said, son, ignorance is no excuse. And so I turned to look at my dad, again, peacemaker dad, and I said, did he just call me ignorant? My dad's like, well, technically yes, but no, don't worry about it. I'm like, you cannot call me ignorant. He goes, well, you're ignorant because you didn't know. And so we started to get this argument. I was like, call me ignorant again. And, uh, my dad is like, Austin, seriously, chill out. And he goes, hey, if you want, we can go back and talk about this over at the office over a, over a couple of handcuffs. That's no problem at all. And uh, so we get in this argument, and finally, long story short, um, it ends with me getting a ticket. I was charged with one count of uh, fish homicide. And so <laughs> I had to go to court for this later on. And I actually, the charges got dropped, so you know nothing on my record. I can still fish in Arkansas. It's all good. But a couple days later... I picked up this book by a guy named Andrew Murray. Uh, Andrew Murray was a pastor in South Africa a few years ago. He's dead now, but he was a pastor in South Africa. and um, Well, he's dead, but he's alive with Christ, so that's, I can say that. But he, uh, he was a pastor in South Africa, and he wrote a book called Abide. It's a good book. You should pick it up. And I, was, I, I picked it up to read it, and I was reading the preface. I know it's weird to read the preface, but sometimes there's a little treasure or two in the preface. And on the first page of the preface... I want you to hear what he said, because when I heard this, it really caught my attention. He said, If we ask the reason why those who have indeed accepted the Savior and been made partakers of the renewing Holy Spirit, thus come short of the full salvation prepared for them, I am sure that the answer will in very many cases be that ignorance is the cause of the unbelief That fails of the inheritance. Now, let me shrink that into what he's saying. What he's saying is he believes that ignorance is why so many Christians miss out on the full life that God intends for them to have. Now, I share that with you for this reason I fear that we are very ignorant when it comes to our understanding of the Holy Spirit. You know, we're studying in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and in verse 1, listen to what Paul says. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, or brothers and sisters, he's talking to his brothers and sisters in Christ, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Some of your translations, instead of uninformed, it says ignorant. That's what that word means. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Ignorant. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to jump into what I think is one of the most uh, interesting studies that I've ever taught through in my life. This this time last year, we started our bare naked sex uh, study, which everybody wants to talk about sex. Who in here wants to talk about sex? Okay, you are all liars. Everybody wants to talk about sex. Uh, And it showed last year because everybody showed up to talk about sex. But everybody needs to talk about this. Everybody needs to talk about this. And as your pastor, this is a study that I've wanted to do for a while. We've needed to do for a while. And one of the reasons is, all of us in this room, we come from so many different backgrounds. I mean, I know not everybody in here grew up in the church, but many of you grew up going to church. And so some of you came from backgrounds where your church never mentioned the name of the Holy Spirit. His name was kind of treated like Lord Voldemort from the Harry Potter series, <laughs> he Who Must Not Be Named. Like you never talked about, it was never, he was never talked about, he was never taught about, and honestly, if you looked at your church, it seemed like his presence was lacking altogether. I mean, your pastor, he talked about Jesus all the time, but when you watch your church worship, you would think that this Jesus he talked about was dead. Your church worship services look more like a funeral for a dead God than a celebration for a living God. Others of you came from a completely opposite background. Your church services looked more like a circus. It wasn't so much about the singing in worship, it was more about the dancing. You had people doing victory laps around the worship center. You had people getting quote-unquote slain in the spirit. Some of them would fall to the ground, just like lay there like they were dead. Some would flop around, kind of convulse. At the end of the service, people would be prophesying over other people. Your pastor, he talked about the Holy Spirit a lot. He talked about being filled with the Holy Spirit. He talked about being baptized by the Holy Spirit, and at the end of the service, he'd ask people to come up and be filled with the Holy Spirit, and when that would happen, people would come to that person, lay their hands on that person, and sometimes for hours, pray over that person, until they started to speak in tongues, audible, (laughs) weird-sounding, No, okay, good, I'm glad y'all hear what I'm saying here. Some of the old women would bring these tambourines to church with purple ribbons hanging off of them, being all loud and stuff, and your pastor sounded like he was having an asthma attack every time he started to preach. But others of you, you grew up somewhere in the, in, you know, your church experience was somewhere in between that. We come from all these different backgrounds, and I mean, just kind of pausing and stepping back for a minute. Do you ever wonder which church is is worshiping the right way? Because we got some extremes there. But but another reason we just, we've got to study this is I get so many questions about this. In fact, as we've been taking questions for Ask Anything series, I've already gotten questions about you know speaking in tongues and prophecy, healing, these different things. Uh, just a couple of days ago, I was in a conversation with two of our students. They're probably here tonight. Uh, the three of us together were talking. One of these students began to share how, how they, since they were, were a child, have spoken in tongues, had what they would call a private prayer language. They speak in tongues when they're alone praying to God. And then this other person that was part of this conversation was like, what? I've never heard any of this before. Mind totally blown and no context for understanding any of this. They'd never thought about or talked about speaking in tongues or, or modern day prophecy. I mean, we're all over the spectrum on, on this stuff. And And when you think about who the Holy Spirit is and when you see... What the Bible says about him, it's pretty incredible to think what we could possibly be missing out on in our relationship with God. Especially when you consider a text like John chapter 4, where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. In verses 22 through 24, he says something interesting to her. There's a lot of things that he says that's interesting, but this in particular catches my attention. Verse 22, he says to this little woman, he says, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Then he says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and what? And in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. I mean, do we even know who we're worshiping? Have you even thought about that question? Do you even know who you're worshiping? I mean, in our Christian culture, this is an extremely important question because our Christian culture is a quote-unquote worship-driven culture. Passion in Atlanta is coming up in a few days, and then again in February in Houston. uh, You have Hillsong, you have Jesus Culture, all these conferences and all these shows and concerts going around the country and around the world where people gather for days, hours, just to worship. Our culture is a a, quote-unquote worship-driven culture. Do we even know, though, what kind of worshipers God wants us to be. And and maybe this study will bring us closer to understanding what worshiping in spirit and in truth really means. Jesus says true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth, but today it seems like it's usually spirit versus the truth, not spirit and the truth. Those who seem to emphasize the Holy Spirit typically de-emphasize the truth of God's word. And those who seem to emphasize the truth of God's word seem also to de-emphasize the Holy Spirit. But both are completely wrong. Neither are true worshipers. Neither is true worship. True worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. And we have to emphasize both. And the reality is, the reality is, if we are truly engaging with the truth of God's word, then his word will lead us into a deeper understanding of and deeper, or deeper relationship with the Holy Spirit. The reverse of that is true as well. If we are truly being led by the Holy Spirit, then we will develop a greater love for and understanding of the truth of God's word. So, I believe that this study we're about to do has the potential to affect your relationship and take you deeper in your relationship with God more than any study we've ever done here at Overflow. So, the next few weeks, we're going to take 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, verse by verse, and chop it up real thin, go digging real deep, and see what Paul has to say about this. Um, So, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, before we go any further, I just want to pray for us that God would lead our time tonight. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we now begin to dig into 1 Corinthians 12, I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and just just help us to see this, Lord. We want to go deeper in our relationship with you. And Lord, show us what it looks like to truly worship in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So he says, now concerning spiritual gifts. Now I want to point this out to you. That word gifts is a gratuitous word. And here's what I mean by that. Gratuitous meaning it's not actually in the Greek text that this is translated from. It's put in there to help us better understand what Paul's saying. Now, it's supposed to be there. It needs to be there. Like it's totally correct for it to be there. It's not incorrect. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying now concerning spirituality. So, so here, here's the context. The Corinthians, they had asked Paul, Paul, what does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What does it look like to be led by the Holy Spirit? And based on what Paul says and how we answer that question here and throughout chapter twelve and throughout the rest of these three chapters, it, it looks like that some people regarded themselves and other people as more spiritual than others based on certain spiritual gifts that those people had received. Are you following what I'm saying? And the further that we dig in, especially when we get to chapter 14, what we eventually see is that this question they were asking him really centered around the more mysterious and supernatural spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues and prophecy. So because certain people were, or at least appeared to be, speaking in tongues and prophesying, others saw those people as more spiritual than everybody else. Or they saw those people as more spirit-filled or more spirit-led. But just to get you thinking a little bit, listen to what N.T. Wright, he's a British uh, pastor and theologian, listen to what he says in one of his commentaries. He says, in a world that's been starved of spirituality, it's easy to suppose that anything which seems to be in touch with something spiritual or supernatural must be from God. So what Paul wanted them to see is that that's not necessarily true. In other words, just because something looks spiritual or supernatural, it doesn't mean that it's actually from God. This is why Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant on these issues. So, what does it look like to be spiritual? What does a truly Spirit-filled believer look like? What does a truly Spirit-led church look like? You know, I hear students give their answers to this in so many different ways, most of which are not based on the truth of God's Word, but based on their own judgment, their own perception on what they're seeing. And when you think about it, that's kind of scary. And you get answers all over the place. Answers like, well, this church's music is awesome. That's a Spirit-filled church over there. Or uh, this pastor is hilarious and a great pastor and dynamic and engaging, spirit-filled pastor right there. Or this church over here, they speak in tongues, or they prophesy at the end of their service, filled with the Spirit. Or man, that dude over there, he has so much Scripture memorized, man, that he's being led by the Holy Spirit. Or I've never heard anyone pray like that before, filled with the Spirit. We use these different things in our minds. We make judgments based on our perception of how we see things and determining who or what is filled with the Spirit or what what is truly being led by God. So what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Does the Bible really give us a standard to go by? I mean, as we hash out these next chapters over the next few weeks, Paul's really going to make this answer more clear, but tonight I want to give you a general overview of what the Bible says about this. So here's five markers of what one who is truly filled with or led by the Holy Spirit. Um, Here's here's five markers of, of what one will look like or what a church will look like who's truly filled with or led by the Spirit. The first is this. They will have a greater esteem for Jesus. Somebody who's truly filled with or led by the Spirit will have a greater esteem for Jesus. John 14, 26, Jesus says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So in other words, Jesus says the Holy Spirit is going to teach us what Jesus has said and help us remember what Jesus has said. Jesus' words. John 15, 26, Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, or the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Holy Spirit will bear witness to us about Jesus. John 16, 14, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. So the first marker of somebody who's filled with the Spirit is they will have a greater esteem for Jesus, who he is, what he does, what he said. The second marker is this, they will have a greater regard for God's Word. Somebody who's filled with the Holy Spirit Led by the Holy Spirit, will have a greater regard for God's word. So, Second Timothy three sixteen says this: All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In other words, the Holy Spirit inspired this book. Like human authors wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Second Peter verse one, uh, chapter one verse twenty one says, "For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man." But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God's word is essentially the Holy Spirit's word. So those who are filled with or led by the Holy Spirit are going to have a greater regard for God's word. Third marker is greater conviction that leads to repentance. Somebody who's truly being led by the Holy Spirit is going to experience greater conviction which leads to repentance. John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, Jesus again, he says, and when he comes, the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I don't know if you noticed this, but John 14 through 16, those three chapters, Jesus, he's talking the whole time, and he's really giving us his theology on the Holy Spirit. So read that, and you'll see what he says, what Jesus himself says about the Holy Spirit. So one who's truly filled with the Holy Spirit, one, will have a greater esteem for Jesus. Two, will have a greater regard for God's Word. Three, will have greater conviction that leads to repentance. Four, will have a greater commitment to God's mission. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says what? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God gives us the Holy Spirit for the purpose of being on mission with Him. So we'll have a greater commitment to His mission. And then the fifth marker is this. We will have a greater love for God's church. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, a verse we'll deal with more next week. Paul says, "...to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit." For the common good. Over and over in the next three chapters, he says the whole point of us being given the Holy Spirit is to build up the church. So we'll have a greater love for the church. Now think about this. We've seen those five markers greater esteem for Jesus, greater regard for his word, greater conviction that leads to repentance, greater commitment to his mission, greater love for the church. Those are five markers of what it looks like to be spirit led. What markers do you not see in there? You don't see a big crowd as a marker of a church that is being led and filled by the Spirit, do you? In other words, a church that has a huge attendance is not necessarily being led by and filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, by the end of his ministry, he didn't have big crowds following him. Justin Timberlake fills arenas with big crowds following him. You don't see awesome worship music as one of the markers. Jesus didn't have a band that opened for him and he didn't wear skinny jeans. You don't see speaking in tongues or prophecy as a marker. You don't see uh, having a choir and singing hymns, the good orthodox hymns that God himself wrote and preaching from the King James Version. You don't see that as a marker. Yet these are the things that we often use to gauge in our minds who is doing church the right way. And and think about this too. If you yourself show none of these signs of being filled with the Holy Spirit, then who are you to judge what is or isn't truly of the Holy Spirit? Let me say that differently. If we show, if we, if we show no signs of being filled with the Holy Spirit, these five markers, greater esteem for Jesus, greater regard for his word, greater conviction that leads to repentance, greater commitment to his mission, greater love for the church. If we don't show any of those signs, then how will we recognize a church or a person as truly being led by the Holy Spirit? All of this is summed up in what Paul says in verse 3, chapter 12. He says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. In other words, he says, It's impossible for someone to make the public confession that Jesus is Lord apart from the inner working of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a couple things I want to say about this. First of all, Jesus is not your homeboy. Jesus is your Lord. Many of you believe in the power of God, but are yet to submit to the authority of God. Many of you are willing to believe that Jesus has the authority to save you, but you're yet to show that you believe he has the authority to send you. In other words, you're cool with him saving you from death and hell, but you're not really cool with him saying, hey, now go. Be on mission with me. Jesus is Lord. The scribes, when they would take, before the printing press, they would take Scripture and they would copy it down so there could be more copies of Scripture. They had such a reverence just for the name of the Lord. In the Old Testament, when you see the word Lord written written with capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, in Hebrew, that's the word Yahweh. Like, that's the name of God. And every time these scribes would come to the name Yahweh, they would stop writing. They would go and ceremonially bathe themselves. Then they would change writing utensils. They would write that name. They'd throw that writing utensil away and start again. And the very next time they came to the word Yahweh, even if it was three words later, they would stop. They'd go ceremonially bathe themselves. They'd change pens. They'd write the name and throw that pen away. That's how much respect and reverence they had for the name and the authority of God. So when Paul says, only through the Holy Spirit can you really publicly confess Jesus is Lord, we we have to understand this public confession in the context of the Corinthian people who he's writing to. I mean, for us, in our context, in our culture, it really doesn't cost us much to publicly confess that Jesus is our Lord. But in Corinth, it cost them just about everything. They would be persecuted. They would face social pressures. They would even lose rights within their government if they professed Jesus as Lord. I, I, I spent a few, the past couple weeks, in South Asia. Uh, hence, the reason I'm a little slow today, I, I'm still getting my butt kicked by jet lag. I didn't fall asleep till 6 a.m. this morning. Uh, then my phone woke me up at 9 a.m. You're a punk who did that. You're here. You know who you are. <laughs> but uh, I, so I only got about three hours of uh, three hours of sleep. And anyways, uh, so was in South Asia. And the, the believers in South Asia, they give up everything when they publicly confess Jesus as Lord. The, the night after we got there, we got word that a pastor very near us had been stabbed multiple times. And that same night, we got word that a family of Christians was pulled out of their home, tied to trees, and beaten because they're Christians. At one point during our time over there, we went to a different city in a northern part of the state that we were in. And the the day that we arrived in that city, there was an article published in the paper by the Radical Hindu uh, Party, which is the party in this part of the world that does most of the persecuting. Uh, They published an article saying That if they heard, if anybody heard of people converting to Christianity, there was now a hotline for people to call. They could call that radical Hindu party and they would take care of the problem. Persecution in this part of the world is completely different. This is probably more what it would have been like to be in Corinth. For the believers in South Asia to publicly profess Jesus as Lord. That is to give up everything. I mean, believers all over the world give up everything when they publicly profess Jesus as Lord. And the reality is that is only possible if the Holy Spirit is doing something in your heart. To truly mean that Jesus is Lord. And here's here's what I'm getting at. In our culture, it's easy to publicly profess Jesus as Lord and not even mean it. Like you would never do that in another culture. You would only do that if you really mean it in another culture. If Jesus is truly the Lord of your life and you're truly going to make that known, that is because truly God is doing something through his Holy Spirit in your heart. This is the Holy Spirit's primary purpose. It is to point us to Jesus. His role is to point us to Jesus and move us into submission to Jesus. That's what Paul says in verse 3, but back up to verse 2. This verse really caught my attention uh, while I was in South Asia. He says this, he says, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Listen to that again. He says, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. So while we were in South Asia, there was one night we went and visited a couple different temples. We went to a Buddhist temple, then we went to a Hindu temple. Both were very surreal experiences. But the Hindu temple especially was very interesting. Um, so, so we go and we spent probably 45 minutes walking around this thing. We didn't go inside, but first of all, there's, there's cattle everywhere. Cattle in the Hindu culture are, are held in very high esteem. Uh, cows walking in and out of the temple. In fact, it's considered a blessing when the cow walks into the temple. It's considered even more of a blessing if he defecates in the temple. Some people will walk by cows and they'll, they'll rub their head, the cow's head, and then they'll take it and just wipe their hand on their face. And even, uh, even people have been seen going up to cows while they're peeing in the middle of the street, stick their hand under the stream, take it and wipe it on their head. Is considered a blessing. But we stood there and we walked around the temple and we watched these people worship. All sorts of rituals. I mean, everything from somebody had bought a brand new car that day, so they brought it to the temple and had one of the priests, they paid one of the priests to come out and bless the car, there are all these ritualistic things they did with candles and lighting different stuff and smells and all this weird stuff. You could, you could buy a special type of coconut, kind of a hairy looking coconut, I don't know. And then you take it to this priest, you could pay the priest, he would crack it open and then he'd sprinkle it on some stuff and then he'd offer up a special prayer for you. And then you could pay a certain amount of money You can get into certain special chambers of this Hindu temple. But there was one ritual that really caught my attention. As people would walk around the temple, they'd come back to the front of the temple where this massive idol was. It looked like it was made out of gold. Maybe it was some other shiny metal. I don't know. But this massive idol of this lowercase g, God. And there was this bell, and they would take the bell, and they'd ring it really, 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 really loud. And then they'd do this thing with their hands, and they'd walk away. And I asked one of the guys we were with, what in the world do they keep ringing the bell for? And the guy, without hesitation, he said, they're trying to wake him up. They're trying to get their God's attention. Listen to what Paul says again. He says, So you know that when you were pagans, or not believers, you were led astray. And actually that word led astray is the same word that was used when talking about Jesus being led to the cross. That's the word that was used to talk about captives or criminals being led away into captivity. So you, when you were a pagan, you were led away to mute idols. I think this sermon series is crucial for us. I'm seeing more and more students like you dragged away into false forms of spirituality. We're so easily led astray into false forms of spirituality, I believe because we're so desperate to hear God speak. And what you experience here, or maybe in your Bible studies that you're in, or whatever it is, for whatever reason, isn't working for you. But listen again to what Paul says. He says, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. He's creating a very clear distinction between mute idols and our God who is not mute. In other words, he's saying, dead, false, fake, man-made gods, they cannot speak, but the one true living God can. He's saying our God is not mute. So, why is it that sometimes, and some of you would say oftentimes, others of you you would say all the time, why is it that we can't hear God speak? Is it because our God is mute or is it because we are deaf? So often we accuse God of not speaking to us, but at what point will we take credit for being deaf? Here's what I think the problem is. Here's where I think the problem lies. We want to hear the deeper things of God. We want to hear the secret stuff. We want to hear the pillow talk, but we refuse to listen to the most basic things that he's already said. Love Jesus. Love his word. Turn from sin. Commit to his mission. Love his church. Psalm twenty-five fourteen says, The secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him. In other words, the deeper things of God are for those who fear Him. It's for those who listen to and respond to the most basic things He's already said and made so clear. So, is God mute or are we deaf? But maybe a better question to ask would be do we really want Him to speak at all? Are we really ready for that? Could we handle it? Would we even survive? Psalm 46, six says, The nations rage, the kingdom totters. He utters his voice and the earth melts. With just a little faint whisper, God speaks and the nations and the kingdoms that refuse to repent and turn to God fall. With a whisper, they fall. I believe God has a lot to say to us over the next few weeks as we dive into this study. I know we got a lot of questions. Potatoes, tongues, tambourines, what are you talking about? I believe the things we're going to talk about have the potential to take us deeper in our relationship with God than ever before. And God wants to speak. But are you ready for Him to speak? So as we close tonight, I, I, I'm going to pray, but before I pray, I just want to give you a minute to pray. Where you are, quietly in your seat, just pray and and ask God, what is keeping you from hearing him speak? I want you to take a minute here and I want you to ask God, Lord, show me what is keeping me from hearing you speak? Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.